This is a heavy set of scriptures. Consequently, this may seem to be a heavier sermon than you may be used to hearing from me. But we don't have the luxury of skipping over heavy scriptures. We do have the chance to dig into them. So here we go. Paul loved the congregation in Rome, maybe more than any other church to whom he wrote. The people in the church at Rome were very dear to Paul. Greg reminded us last week some of Paul's most eloquent language is directed to them in this epistle. So then we can imagine Paul saying to these beloved people, Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Something was going on. They may have been fighting. The newly accepted Gentiles might have been lording it over the Jews a little. There was some kind of dissension. And what are the works of darkness? According to Paul, they include reveling, drunkenness, debauchery, licentiousness, quarreling, and jealousy. Today, we might include racism, systemic poverty, discrimination, closed-mindedness, hateful speech or social posts, divisiveness. Right here among our own beloved people. Any of these works of darkness could be grounds for the process of conflict resolution that Jesus outlines in the Gospel reading. First, point out the fault of the one who sins against you face to face. Second, if that doesn't work, take one or two others with you as witnesses to back you up. Third, if that doesn't work, tell it to the whole church. Oh yeah, that will show them. I'm right, they're wrong, I win. Even the church agrees with me. Let's kick them out. Roman Catholic Church has done it for years. It's called excommunication. Protestant and evangelical churches have done it too. It's called banning, or more commonly, churching. Even the Episcopal Church, as progressive as we think we are, has rules surrounding excommunication, and or the denying of communion. Wait, what? Did Jesus really teach that? Not exactly. Look closely at what Jesus does say. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. It is always better to go right to the person who has wronged you as a first step toward resolving the problem. And most of the time, the issue can be worked out by honest conversation. He continues, if the member listens to you, you have regained that one. Think of the lost sheep, which is the passage right before this. By making the effort to stay in relationship we follow Jesus' teaching. He goes on. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others with you so that every word may be confir confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Don't give up. 
If you cannot resolve the issue face-to-face, get a couple of people to join in as objective witnesses. Jesus reminds us, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Even if they are gathered over a problem or disagreement. Then, if the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If the small group approach doesn't work, take it to the wisdom of the larger community. And finally, and if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Finally, a chance to kick them out. Oh, no. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Did he cast them into outer darkness? Did he say, you can't be a part of my church? Did he turn his back on them? Of course not. Just as Paul loved the Romans, Jesus loves his church and wants to see all the people reconciled. He welcomed the Gentiles and the tax collectors, of which Matthew may have been one. He ate with them. He stayed in their homes. He maintained the relationship. In her book, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error, Catherine Schultz outlines what she calls the because it's true constraint. Every one of us confuses our models of the world with the world itself. This, she says, sets in motion corollaries that determine how we deal with challenges to our belief systems, and not in a good way. First corollary is the ignorance assumption. Since we think our own beliefs are based on facts, We conclude that people who disagree with us are just ignorant of the right information. If they knew what we know, they would join us, no doubt. When others reject our beliefs, they lack good judgment. When we reject their beliefs, we think we possess good judgment. Second corollary is the idiocy assumption. With this, we concede that our opponents know the facts, but we deny that they have the brains to comprehend them. This can be applied to a specific person on a particular issue, or the really dangerous one. It can be a sweeping assessment of any individual or group we regard as the opposition. Think of the times you might have said, What kind of idiot would actually believe that? I know I have. The final corollary is the evil assumption. Here the idea is that people who disagree with us are not ignorant of the truth, nor are they unable to comprehend it, but have willfully turned their backs on it. This one has been very popular in religion, equating unbeliever with evildoer. And this particular assumption is especially good at provoking violent conflict. We see and hear this constantly 
through the 24-hour news cycle, hosts, guests, callers, describing ideological opponents as morally depraved reprobates bent on the destruction of civilization as we know it. Schultz concludes this outline by likening us to toddlers and tyrants, taking our own stories for the infallible truth and dismissing as wrong-headed or wicked anyone who disagrees. But this kind of reaction to disagreement or conflict is absolutely counter to what Jesus is teaching us today. Jesus is exhorting us, his church, to do whatever it takes to try to stay in relationship with those with whom we disagree, to extend mercy and compassion to them, to reconcile with them. And Paul, too, admonishes us to stay in relationship, to do no wrong to a neighbor, and to fulfill the law by loving one another. While I am hopeful for the future, I recognize that there is evil in the world. There are those who seem to revel in the works of darkness. Jesus knew that, too. Think of the times he called out the brood of vipers or that faithless and perverse generation. Jesus didn't have a Pollyanna view of the world that would eventually kill him. For us, the night is far gone. And this night has been going on for years. And it still continues. And we pray for the day to come quickly. And it will come. But it won't be the day to get, that we get to say, Ha! We were right and you were wrong. No. It will be the day rebuilding must begin. The hard work of reconciliation must begin. And thankfully... We've had a good teacher. As Christians, we must put on the armor of light, literally put on the Lord Jesus Christ and live as he lived, not in ignorance or idiocy or evil, but in mercy, compassion, and love. We can't do it perfectly. Thankfully, we don't have to do it perfectly. A little earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul reminds us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. What we have to do is to work to stay at the table, to keep the conversation going, to prop the door open, This is why Jesus died for us. He keeps the door always propped open for reconciliation with God and with our brothers and sisters, even those with whom we disagree. I love this community. I love this church family. 
We all love our church. We all love our country. We all love our planet. As this maddening year continues, I pray that the spirit of community and reconciliation can prevail. And I believe we can help that spirit prevail if we do lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, put on Jesus Christ, and let His light shine through us, the light of grace, the light of mercy, the light of reconciliation, the light of love. Amen.